This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. Hello, and with me, Cam Raslan, today we have the returns of... She is a campaign, the campaign producer at BFM, and she is Julian Yap. Hello, thank you for having me back. It's great to have you. Uh, you can fill us in with any uh, BTS updates. Uh. I will, I will. It's an hour-long talk, and I will talk to you after this. Okay. <laughs> and he is, uh, he is, oh, Kajin, you just told me, and it's already escaped me, you are the... <laughs> I'm the chief strategy officer at Nord Labs, but it's good to be back, Cam. <laughs> it's great to have you here. Um, uh, that's Onkar Jin, by the way, folks. Yes. And so our three topics this week are topic number one is food on TikTok. Topic number two is copy left. Uh, going to be an education for all of us. And finally, topic number three will be young adult literature. So uh, with topic number one, Julian, food on TikTok. Who'd have thought that this would be my topic, huh? <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, food on TikTok. Um, I, um, I love. I think, like a lot of people on social media, I love watching food on social media, and this has been all through every most iterations of social media. So, you know, when we've moved from Facebook, moving over to Instagram, I I love food on Tumblr as well. You know, I watched food, the Asian food channel. Uh, growing up, I also watched a lot of the Delia Smith. The I also went back to the Julia Child because I just love watching food being cooked. And um, I was thinking the other day about how different TikTok food is. And because Instagram is still ver the very prevalent, you know, social media, so is TikTok at the moment. TikTok's taking that over. And I love how different it is. So go just going back a little bit, um, how that that traditional food network kind of style of video where you watch an expert. It's always has it always has to be an expert. Even if that expert is a housewife at home, there is some that whatever they tell you when they when they're when not performing but when they're preparing something that has weight to it because they are an authority on food and because that's how it's always been and then when we moved over to Facebook and Facebook and YouTube especially that was also what it was like it was experts imparting information um YouTube as well YouTube just became kind of the accessible free version of watching a food network kind of channel yeah, because, you know, you've got like Jamie Oliver had his food tube, Gordon Ramsay had his channel and everything. Um, on the other hand, also YouTube had um, a different kind of approach to it. YouTube had to be, you know, in your face. They had to do big challenges and they also had because they had to grab your attention. The algorithm was working. So you were getting delivered the videos, but the thumbnail, the title had to be, I ate 10,000 crabs watch me vomit, you know, like it had to be, it had to you know, get your attention. Um, Instagram um, kind of, you know, took a step back from that. It became very visual. It was almost um, kind of a, what, what's it called? Like a portfolio of food. It became art. It, it kind of became art because that's what Instagram started out as. It became, it started out as an album. And now that we've gotten to TikTok, I, it's so cool. I don't know if it's cool. It's so interesting because food on TikTok is, um, for one, it's so accessible. TikTok food trends kind of pop up every other month, and they're and they stick around for such a short amount of time. I think the for, and this is obviously because everyone was stuck at home and looking just for something to do and also to connect with other people. And 
also because the audience on TikTok skew so much younger, a lot of people learning a lot of things for the first time. So even something as simple as food hacks or um, how to make ice in a different sort of way than just an ice tray, because that's not something that everyone knows. Even that could get two million views or twenty million views in a night, you know. So, but J- Julian, you you got to give me more information here because oh. I cannot get my head around the idea. I mean, TikTok is at maximum what one minute. Uh, now you can go up to like eight or seven minutes. Oh my god! But yeah, the most the most popular ones are the shorter ones. I think the most effectively is seven seconds. So, I mean, how do you, I don't understand. How do you, what are you, how, what, <laughs> seven seconds? I don't get it. What? Yeah, so um, I think the the most popular probably, and um, the one that, I, yeah, probably the most popular, you see someone preparing a full meal or like maybe even just like making butter, but you see the entire process of it, of even opening the bag, every second of it cut together so quickly and you just get kind of the Edgar Wright kind of sound bite of the of it. And um, that's probably the most popular way popular way that someone goes viral and you've got a whole library of it because TikTok TikTok's algorithm rewards um, fast-paced and rewatches and also constant uploading so you ideally a TikTok creator would update and put out put out something every single day because that's mm. how you keep up your views and your popularity so um, TikTok on food on TikTok has sort of you know evolved in that so you've got everyone doing their different I think I don't know it's kind of hard because there's so many different types you've got different people doing the same style maybe but you know one's doing it on Korean food one on on someone who is Korean American so they're doing americanized versions of Korean food or someone's doing Malaysian food or Malaysian food in another country you know it's so interesting and um or even um, professional chefs. There's a woman called Poppy Cooks, and she was a professional chef. She lost her job during the pandemic, and she went viral on TikTok. She's still viral now, and she's just put out a, book, a cookbook because she specializes in potatoes. So she just makes mm. potato dishes. And um, it's really kind of really great because once something's done, it can be recreated and interacted with instantly by everyone around the world because they get to see something. And uh, TikTok also prioritizes accessibility and um, uh, you can see this especially with TikTok trends so the very popular TikTok trend Dalgona coffee it uses um, uh, instant coffee powder and sugar and milk so those were things that people had in their pantry and they were cheap and they had it during COVID and the pandemic so they could everyone could do it and most TikTok trends are vegetarian so accessibility and um, sort of ease you don't need to have expertise Okay. Oh, I, uh, clearly, you are sold on this, uh, Julian. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, Kajin, you've been nodding away like you know what is going on here. When you said butter on TikTok, I was like, oh, there's this guy called Thomas Straker. That's the butter guy! <laughs> <laughs> All he does is like, he posts like a video of how he makes butter, but like, you know, like tomato garlic butter or like um, burnt broccoli hummus butter or something like that. you know it's it's a twist on it and i have to say that i don't know what it is uh, maybe it's because it's so visual and there is something to say about the accessibility but i never you know people would post recipes and how to's all the time on like facebook and instagram but i never got into it and actually followed the recipes mm-hmm. until i saw them on tiktok yeah same yeah okay but it's mouth-watering i mean it's visual it's a visual it's like almost tactile it's it's mouth-watering is it yeah it, it's 
there's like ASMR elements, you know, this is like, you know, you can hear the crackling of like opening the package with a bird, like, and then the of like the frying of the, <laughs> of, of the garlic and the of like whatever they're peeling. Yeah, Karjin gets it. All the senses are engaged in one time. I I might get it too. I just never, I've never looked at it. I don't know. What I find amazing though, is that you did that whole uh, talk there, Julian, and you never once mentioned TV. I mean, mean, these guys like the the, the Jamie Olivers and Gordon Ramsay, they came from TV, but like the whole TV show is just dead. Now we've, we've boiled it down to seven seconds on TikTok. Yeah, because I think um, it's the, the preference of the audience, right? So if I could have the choice, well, no, maybe, maybe not me because I, I, I love watching, I love watching the, the professionals do it as well. But I think like the audience, the preference of watching another young person, if I'm a 25-year-old, I'm broke. And um, if I could watch another 25-year-old who's also broke and do a stunning dish with something that could only cost like two, $2 to ring it, if I had to watch that rather than, you know, a professional to say that, oh, you could make this dish for your whole family for just $2 a week, I'd, I'd, I'd never want to choose that person. Because if you could live in a really small place and you've got, re- you've got one pan and one knife, if I could watch that person do something stunning rather than a whole studio kitchen where it's kind of scripted, I'd... That there's a preference there, I think. So it's not about lifestyle envy, which is what you know Facebook and these TV shows have always been about. Oh, so there was a study done last year um, by MGH, the marketing agency, and they found that 36% of TikTok users have visited or ordered food from a restaurant after they saw a TikTok video about it. And they also found that 55% of people visited a restaurant from TikTok simply because the food looked good. So that's a different kind of envy. But then, you know, Asian food, uh, doesn't photograph or probably TikTok well. Like uh, rendang tok is for me the most delicious dish in the whole world. But you look at it, it looks horrible. It's just dark brown <laughs> thing, but it tastes amazing. But the process is beautiful. Okay, so then TikTok. Yeah, I'm, brings... I'm sure it's marketable. You know, they'll put some like colorful garnish and like, but then, you, you know, torch ginger lilies and it'll be like, oh, <laughs> so colorful and bright. I'm offended. I am I'm culturally offended just by hearing <laughs> you say that. <laughs> um, okay, so uh, I, I, I don't know what to do with this topic, Julian. So we should all go look at TikTok food things. Yeah, I think yeah, I think there's a there's there's you know there's an audience for all the different types of food of, of food and on all the different social medias, and it's not like the TV food network person the the, the food pro- professional is ever going to die because that has also migrated onto places like Netflix with the Chef Show, Chef's Table, those still exist and people mm. do enjoy that. It's just I think the kind of the brain noise that it gives you, the satisfaction, the instant satisfaction of just, mm. you know, watching like a really beautiful piece of toast rather than, you know, Nigella being like, oh, yeah, I butter my toast twice. And <laughs> that, you know, I think, I don't know, it kind of feels uh, like food. Ageism. I feel ageism. <laughs> I love Nigella. <laughs> Nigella is perfect. Yeah. But, I will say uh, one yeah. thing, though. I, I think that the TikTok food trends are generally going to prepare us well for a recession. Oh, God, exactly. Okay. Very simple, easy to follow ingredients. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, I want to ask you one last question, Julian, because I know the answer to this. So you love these TikTok things, but will you make one? Oh, no, no, I think everyone's made one. No, I mean, no, you're going to make a TikTok food. No, 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 never. No, 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 never. 
this yeah. is just for me to try. Because <laughs> I, I don't know, TikTok food trends are kind of like the water cooler moment without actually being around the water cooler. Everyone's sort of commenting on each other. They're all, everyone sharing the same experiences of, you know. Mm. And I think that's great. Everyone's okay. doing uh, it. Yeah, I'll check it out. I'll check it out. I'll send um, you some videos. Okay. Um, <laughs> I've, I'll have a spare 30 seconds to spend watching 50 <laughs> TikTok videos. No problem. <laughs> the amount of information that you can get. Unparalleled. Uh, well, okay. Well, perhaps that, that is a segue to our next topic. Topic number two. It might be. It might not be. I don't know what it means. Well, there is something to be said about accessibility. Yeah. Okay. So with Kajin, uh, it's not copyright. It's copy left. Yeah. So you know, like I, I, I guess, um, you know, copy left. Well, you know, copyright. The the right in in copyright denotes like intellectual property rights, right? So you you treat knowledge as a form of property to be controlled, and you 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 can decide who gets to use it and who doesn't. So. Copy left is a movement mostly among software developers, but also I think increasingly among some publishers as well um, to basically democratize the use of information. So, I mean, creative commons is one very, very common form of copy left practice where basically it's like, you know, I published this book, but you are allowed to distribute it if you want to, you can make copy folder copies of it. It's not illegal for you to do so. And if you want to just send a PDF to your friend, um, feel free to do so, right? So I think it's really a kind of, you know, reaction to a, a kind of environment where there's so many copyright infringements and, you know, like patterns. And, and there's this like idea that, especially in academic journals now, this idea that, oh, you know, ev- everything's being very controlled and copywriting something is really an excuse for profiteering of an idea that should be more democratic and more open to people. Mm. So, like, mm. I think a very radical form of this was um, when, uh, when, uh, an, uh, when a Russian academic actually took scientific journals that were behind a paywall and started uploading them for free to, on a torrent website. Yeah, so I mean, uh, academic journals are incredibly expensive. Yeah, yeah. So I think that's that's one version of that where you know it's very, very like you know why on earth does it cost me you know five hundred US dollars to read ten pages of some obscure thing, right? When this kind of knowledge can be used and built upon. Okay, so uh, Onkar Jin's an anarchist. And, uh... <laughs> Well, um, you know, I, I, you know, I, I mean, think, he wants to I, burn I, it all down. Yeah, no, I mean, look, look, think, think about it this way, right? So, you know, when, when, when I was younger, buying original DVDs were incredibly expensive, right? Yeah. Like, you know, like if if you're like the average Malaysian, and you know, you're not gonna go to like Speedy and buy like a DVD that costs 150 ringgit every time you want to watch a movie, so. Okay. Although it's illegal, right? Make no mistake about it. Like pirating um, and torrenting for many people was the most accessible way and the most democratic way in which they accessed it, which otherwise they would not have access to. Yeah, well, that's great. But that's great for, you know, casual consumers. But the people who make the product will then make no money and then can never make the movie ever again. Yeah. So I think that's why... um, like copyleft has come out of this environment where, you know, there's like two very big extremes, right? Where on one hand, it's like, 
I'm going to copyright everything. Even if you want to like take 10 seconds of it, it's illegal or whatever. And on the other hand, like pirates who are like openly profiteering off and not giving a single cent. So I think copyleft is this idea that from the very beginning, you create content with the idea that you are not going to control how it's disseminated after. Or make profit a, any kind of money off it? I mean, how do you ever yeah, make you, any... You can make money off it. So, for example, um, I know several book publishers that are doing copyleft publishing. So what, what, what that means is they'll publish the book, but if you want to pirate it, you can go ahead. If you want to okay. distribute their PDF, you can go ahead. And they operate on this idea that perhaps what they're doing is, oh, like the physical copy of the book is a beautiful copy. I mean, you know, you can distribute a PDF as much as you want, but the physical copy is so beautiful that you would want to buy it and you would want to earn. To, yeah, I, I was listening to a, an author saying that she did that. And, um, mm. and she was saying how she, her sales have been incredible. I mean, she yeah. had given away the, the PDF, but then sold really well in the books. And I was like, oh, it's just not possible, but she's whore by it. Yeah, I mean, I think Radiohead, um, the the band, um, did it as well, where they released an album where they didn't charge people anything except what they wanted to. And they said, you know, you buy a digital copy and you do whatever you want. Yeah, but they were already Radiohead. This is their 10th <laughs> album. True. That is true. And they knew that, that by the time they were doing that, that the album sale thing was dead, yeah. unlike when they did their first album. So yeah. they said to themselves, we might as well just give it away because we make all our money on doing live gigs to 100,000 people in one shot. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, <laughs> Julian, uh, are you persuaded? Oh, no, no, not completely. The second Karjan said, you know, when you bought the DVDs, <laughs> I was persuaded. <laughs> she was like, guilty. <laughs> yeah. No, but also, I, I don't know. I don't know if, I don't know if it's ever been, because I, I, don't, I don't know anything about coffee, copy left. I also don't know a lot of, anything about software whatsoever but in terms of just information or just studies in general just maybe not pirating but just sharing of information there's i think in general on social media or maybe just society in general just being not gatekeeping things right mm -hmm. making everything de de democratizing knowledge because um i don't i don't know if this comes from this or if this stems yeah, from, yeah, you know totally. but um also um i think in the past and uh, I think history, if I'm not mistaken, um, in a lot of a lot of history, or rather than like the progress of history or archaeology, even um, a lot of the time, uh, studies were kept by you know they they one one part would study one group of people would study this specific bit, and one group of people study this specific bit, and then when you open up that information, so for I think there was a case where. Um, this you know his, historians were studying Cam's gonna Cam's gonna throw hands in a second but um, historians were studying this this very weird um, instrument and they couldn't figure out what this was and um, they I think they didn't I think it was unsolved for years the second they showed it to uh, a seamstress or you know an, a, a modern uh, a modern maker an, an actual person who's still in that who's in that job today and they could instantly say well that's an all or that's a that's a an a loom machine or something that that opening up of information has always been encouraged or important for progress. Yeah, I guess in the academic sphere. But yeah, I know the Guardian newspaper quite some time ago took the decision to to give all of their content away for free uh, because a number of newspapers, Murdoch papers, paywall. The Times have the paywall, but of course <clears throat> with Murdoch and his paywall, 
he actually has no intention that anybody should ever read the times he doesn't really care <laughs> you know he he just owns the times and has it on his wall like a an animal that he shot um <clears throat> no one's ever supposed to actually read it so but the guardian gave it away and having financial trouble so they they then did uh donations mm. they do it through donations now mm. last i heard it had gone well mm. but that was a few years back i don't know if they're still mm-hmm, mm-hmm. making it work right yeah I mean, the whole like Wikipedia movement is is like a a spawn of of all these kind of uh, sentiments around information and knowledge as well. I mean, imagine like you used to have to buy the Encyclopedia Britannica <laughs> <laughs> by volume by letter. Yeah, well, I I I mean, my computer right now is sitting on three Encyclopedia Britannica <laughs> from nineteen sixty eight. What letters are oh, wow. they? Wow. Uh, what letters? I got I got no, it's number one, two, and three <laughs> up until both. <laughs> <laughs> and a this is both. kind of kind of the importance of, of forums, right? Traditional internet forums, which actually we're kind of um, the internet has been moving away from just internet spaces, forums where people are able to have conversations. Why uh, being able to pose a question and have experts or even just lay people who've actually gone through the same problem that that doesn't happen as often anymore because we're moving we're going to we're moving towards social media. Um, yeah. 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 I mean, I, th- I think it all sounds great. I mean, Kajin, you're sold on this, aren't you? Oh yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, I mean, a couple of nights' time, I will I will break into your house, <laughs> and I will find your most prized possession, and you'll wake up going, Cam, what the hell are you doing? And I'm I just no, Kajin, I want this. <laughs> I really like it. You can make a copy of it and have one. That's uh, just don't take the original. No, no, because by your <laughs> analogy, also you should make the copy. Oh, and then give it to me. Sure, I'll do it for you. <laughs> it's your expense, not mine. I and I, I just want it. <laughs> no, it doesn't matter what I do with it. Um, okay, well, I, it, no, actually, this is but this is the the story of our times, and if mm. it works, and if it doesn't work, and how people can be tempted to make uh, new innovations and a profit mm-hmm. is, is is the real issue. Yeah, Cam, I thought you'd be sold on the copyleft concept. I, I'm, I'm not sold or unsold. It's actually something I've been thinking about. And I, like I mentioned that that author before, mm. and um, when she said that, it's very intriguing. It's like, yeah, I know, I can see, I could see how that could work, and it's, it's you know worth considering. But intuitively, it just it feels, it just feels like you're just, it's just, it's wrong. <laughs> <laughs> wow, this is the most conservative cam has appeared in the yeah. but like the industrial revolution the one of the key elements the reason why the industrial revolution was able to even happen was the patent well, that's true uh so that a person could come up with something and patent it copyright it and proceed to make a profit on it so the information on the patent could go out there but they would be able to own that now it has been abused since then Mm-hmm. horribly so that the big companies now have patented just damn everything and you can invent something and have no knowledge of that other thing and then they'll come along and say oh no no it's our patent so that's a nightmare um okay well no how dare you say conservative no i'm, I'm all for it i love it <laughs> copy left now <laughs> siblings so uh comrades so uh but in a moment we'll come to topic number three which will be young adult literature here on uh, Bit of Culture, BFM 89.9. And we're back with myself, Cam Ruslan, Julian Yap, and Onkar Jin. And now, topic number three, young adult literature. So it's um, it's really difficult to find uh, facts and figures and information on the internet. I don't know if you guys have ever 
tried to do any research. So I tried to do some, some research on um, sales of uh, young adult literature. So I was able to find very differing numbers. So anywhere between its young adult and children's books globally is a, either a 10 or 17 billion US dollar industry. And the largest market, largest single market for young adult and children's books in the world is Asia Pacific. That's us, folks. Uh, accounting for something like 34% of the sales of these books. And uh, that's bigger than US and that's bigger than Europe by, by a fair margin. Now, Asia Pacific does include Japan, etc. So, uh, and then also um, something like 55%, at least, it could be higher, of all books sold are children's and young adult books. So, it, folks, if you're thinking of becoming an author... <laughs> Think about, think about getting to young adult because people actually buy these. It is possible also then that over 50% of the people who buy these books are themselves adults, but they're probably buying it for their kids. Uh, but they might be reading themselves. There was a big adult fan group for uh, Harry Potter, for instance. And so uh, it's, 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 a, it's a big deal. So it made me think, what, what are some of the, um, I think all three of us have, have read children's stroke young adult books growing up but we're kind of like from three different generations in a way so i'm wondering if we could collate and find out where the differences lie some of the tropes in the 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 young adult world and see how they've changed so i'll go first because i'm the oldest and so we're digging deeper the archaeology of young adult literature because it wasn't called that in my time in my time there were children and then suddenly one day you're an adult it's like oh I had no idea. Um, <laughs> there was no transitional phase. I was a teenager, but teenager was not adult. So there was a really ha small handful of books for kids. And the ones that I came across, which were really great, often had subliminal messages, which I had no idea about. So, for instance, the Narnia Chronicles, Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, and that kind of thing, was huge. And apparently, it's suffused with sort of Christian stories. Kajin is nodding his head. I had no idea. <laughs> um, but... Also, a lot of ones that I read, which were very popular, were, were very much historical things. But one thing that went through all of them was a young person suddenly being torn away or leaving parents, suddenly parentless in a very adult world, sometimes, uh, but not always, sometimes being given a position of real authority <laughs> and decision-making. I mean, Harry Potter's a more recent version, but in the ones that I was reading, they were suddenly involved in sieges and directing armies. And they were like, I don't know, 10 years old. It was crazy, but it was very thrilling and scary. Um, so I think that's one trope that continues through. But uh, Kajin, when you were growing up, did you, did you have a, a, a library of books? Did you read? Yeah. I mean, I mostly read like Harry Potter, I suppose. And Twilight. Really? How old are you? Oh, no, I thought you were older. I'm I'm 28. I'm 28. We're the oh, wow. same. We've got two I, I'm years. Same age oh, you're the same age. You two are the same age. Sorry. I, I mean, we'll edit that out. Yes. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, we we won't include the fact that you look like an old man. Yes. Uh, yes. Um, yeah. No. I, I mean, I mostly read like Harry Potter. Maybe. I mean, I, I still read them. Uh, I mean, Twilight and The Hunger Games. I I think. Was, well, you read. Yeah, but these well, were all blockbusters, weren't they? I mean, this is like yeah, they, they they were huge. I mean, yeah, every and everybody, all your friends, everybody. Well, I mean, uh, 
I, I got a bit uh, chastised for reading Twilight because it was apparently oh, not a very boy thing to do. Yeah, no, it's not. <laughs> Bullies, <laughs> terrible, and they're all wrong. <laughs> okay, what about you, Julian? No, well, we've established that we've got the exact same. We're the, from the same generation and we read yeah. the exact same books. Yeah. yeah. Um, Harry Potter, Twilight and Hunger Games. These were the three very defining YA books of yeah. of my childhood. They, they, they kind of shaped how I read after that when I moved into sort of teen, more, more of the YA because that's more of the adult to teen to adult YA kind of. Um, but you, uh, you, you did get the habit of reading from reading these and it has continued. Mm-hmm. Is that mm-hmm. correct? Has it continued? No, it has hasn't. it. Has it, Julian? <laughs> no, I think it's TikTok. It, no, it became of the. It, it became well. Now books cost money, and also um, copy left. Copy left. <laughs> 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 yeah. Steal it. Go to Kajin's place. Break in. <laughs> <laughs> Go to your place. You've got all the books. No, but I'm not into this this thing. So you know, I got locks on mine. But his is. He hasn't got any locks. It's all open. You take it. <laughs> But the the sort of themes that so when we were growing so um, the themes that were in the YA books that we were reading and so I I think as a as a girl kid you know you've got a lot of you the the, the YA range exploded sort of in the early to mid you know early to two thousands to about two thousand ten was like sort yeah. of the big boom right and um, I jumped onto the John Green train oh um, right John, where I'm suddenly sorry. all teens were seen. Um, we we finally had a personality, and <laughs> and oh, it, it, there's always a terminal illness somewhere. Yes. Oh, oh and this be, um, uh, I think actually Julian, I think you introduced me to the uh, this genre uh, yeah. with uh, characters who have to decide whether or not they want to live. Did I? Was that me? Yeah, I don't know if it was <laughs> you or not. But but I mean, I, some of them are really quite dark. I mean, it's like the the the, the main character is going to die. Yes. And dies yes. <laughs> <laughs> that's the that's the adult part of young adult yeah i mean, I mean I th- uh, but if you look back into early uh, 19th century german literature that was a trend then also among young people sturm und drang um where you know people would be all kind of romantic and die in fields and stuff kill themselves but uh i i didn't read any of them but i watched the movie maze runner Oh yes, very dystopian. Yeah, very yeah. incredibly dystopian. Yeah. yeah, it's like young people. I mean, it's written by older people, but young people must have a a truly dark um, <laughs> sense of their own time. It's like a whole genre of YA fiction that's very dystopian. I mean, you think about Hunger Games; it's also incredibly stark and, and sadistic, depressing and mm-hmm. quite quite sad, really. And they all sort of. They were all born out of the popularity of hunger of, of Harry Potter. So then it became there was a whole maybe ten years of um, hunger. They've and they've all been adapted into things that have had various degrees of success, mostly bad than good. You know, so there was you know there was Maze Runner and there was Hunger Games and there was Divergent. Uh, yeah, they've all those Fantastic Beasts, uh, not Fantastic Beasts, mythical creatures. They introduced. I think the because I think before I think uh, you know the Terry Pratchett kind of sci-fi and YA they were all very different. YA was um, sleepover club or babysitters club. It was it was these are for girls and these are for boys, and the, it was very clear that that's not segregation that needs to happen when it comes to books and genres. And it beca- and there was a whole so we grew up with just loads of books about fantasy and dystopian. The Ugly series by Scott Westerfeld was. 
was like a huge one. Yeah. So it it's uh, Hunger Games is very it, is unisex then in its appeal. Yeah, yeah I, I think so. You didn't read it, Cam. You don't. You don't know. No, I'm not against. I'm not. I'm saying that. It's, in, in my day, actually, if I think back, though, some of the authors in of the books in my day, because it's you know generational lag and everything, had actually experienced, had had been in the trenches in the First World War, mm. say Tolkien and C.S. Lewis, and they'd actually been, they'd seen horror, mm. and they 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 didn't necessarily want to inflict it upon young mm. people and their audience, uh, and then you'd also have a generation of people from the Second World War who then would be releasing books in the 60s and 70s. Mm. And and likewise, they were shielding people like me from the horror. Mm-hmm. Now you have writers who have never experienced the horror, mm-hmm. who are very happy to write about yeah. the horror. Well, I think I think it's a different kind of, kind of trauma or horror, really. Because I think you can see that, you know, like Hunger Games and all these dystopian kind of, why it really comes in the aftermath of 9-11, right? Yeah. And that that's the kind, the kind of defining moment for all of these American authors writing for young kids. And they're thinking of, you know, how how do how do we write fiction that helps young kids deal with this kind of, you know, in the back of their mind. And I think um I, I've so one of my classmates at university, she just published her YA fiction novel. And it's about gentrification and about Black Lives Matter. And I'm like, wow, okay. So uh, uh, sorry, a Malaysian, a Malaysian writer or uh, no, uh, she's she's uh she's uh, African American. Okay, okay. Yeah, but it's yeah. it's basically about um a bunch of young kids in the neighborhood in South LA, and they try to push out a landlord that's gentrifying the neighborhood and they get into lots of trouble. And that kind of plot line to me is unimaginable for the kind of YA I was reading back yeah. in my day. And I'm like, wow, this clearly, like this is a kind of new generation of YA where they're dealing with very social, you know, very social, very kind of deep-seated racial and socioeconomic issues now. Yeah. And also if, if in my day when I was reading the Narnia things, I didn't get the subtext as a young person. Yeah. Now the subtext is the text. And <laughs> it, it's, pretty up, it's pretty much up front. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and and you see this also if with I guess YA they, they target the YA audiences but coming of age movies for younger audiences as well. Um, for example, Moxie on Netflix that came out last year I think that's directed by Amy Amy Poehler and that was a book as well. And that one is you know coming of age still as a, a girl in high school but also having to deal with a friend who's queer or and also it, as part of the school you're battle you're you're trying to battle for gender equality within the school so. That it, it's all still against the background of well I'm a kid and I'm growing, coming of age and I'm still going to fall in love at the same time and it's it's great yeah yeah so Hannah Alkaf Malaysia's Hannah Alkaf yeah. she's uh, done very well with her, her story which was set in the, the, the riots of May 13th 1969 and it's tense and scary but it's full of hope as well <laughs> I was watching um, the new Netflix adaptation of Persuasion over the weekend terrible oh, yeah. wouldn't round recommend it but yeah. um I mean, Jane Austen's books have always been technically. I don't think they're they're they they didn't have YA then, obviously. But but then it was also when you were nineteen, you got married and you had a you 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 know that's what that's what that 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 was the time that it was in. But the stories are very they're what typically would be technically YA today. Well, I mean, they become they've become the template for though, haven't they? Yeah. 
really? rom-com YA. I mean, she's just sort of set the template. But I'm wondering, like, George Orwell, if he was writing today, he would probably be writing YA. In fact, Animal Farm... Is sort of, yeah. Yeah. I mean, J.D. Salinger, the J.D. Salinger book, that's YA technically, that's YA. isn't it? Yeah. That was that was the YA in my day. <laughs> <laughs> that was like, hey, you're all phonies and... Uh, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, well, uh, so very quickly then, you two, what of the many that you've you've mentioned, what what, what stand out as being ones that you you, you remember with fondness? Fondness with isn't fondness. the word, really, with, with fondness. Hunger Games, is it? You know, Ooh. I mean, I remember things with fondness. <laughs> you know, and then and then he got his head got cut off. Oh, love it! <laughs> <laughs> you know? Only three more to go. Yeah. I think I think for, for me, I I actually really liked Hunger Games, and I think Hunger Games resonated for me, uh, because you know I remember reading Hunger Games when I was first got getting interested in things like Berset, right? Yeah, right, yeah. and then con- that whole kind of context of you know authoritarianism and all that. Yeah, it resonates, yeah. and I think like I mean it, it's very telling when in Hong Kong when the protesters are protesting. They actually, and in Thailand as well, they, they use the Hunger Game hand signal That's right. as a symbol of protest. That's how yeah. formative it is for that generation, right? Yeah. Julian? Um, yeah, Hunger, I th- Hunger Games for me was a big, it was a big deal. Um, but I I think I just, I, I, I think I stuck very much with the, the sort of, you know, close your eyes and pretend nothing's happening kind of person. So uh, I very much fell into the, Perks of being a wallflower, John uh, Green, Fault in Our Stars, Paper Towns, uh, just because. Romance. Yeah, and it was all, and I don't know why, because they were all uh, a teenage white boy in this in a small little town in America, and how he finds love and then finds himself. You know, he's got this little quirk, and he's got a group of friends, and they all help him fall in love. And I don't know why, but those are the ones that I don't know. If they're the the only one ones coming up. To, coming to mind so we've got to move on we've over, over stayed but uh, Diary of a Wimpy Kid did you ever buy <gasps> oh yeah that, that yeah. is one of the I yeah. was looking up the stats and that's like a massive seller yeah, yeah. that was because there were movies as well yeah. yeah I think that's just after my time I think yeah my younger brother read those yeah right okay um, I, I won't mention mine because they're out of print what's yours <laughs> <laughs> I remember one that was set in the Siege of uh, Rhodes in 1520. Oh, oh wow. Seas so cool. of Mourning. And it was absolutely fantastic. So forget it. Wow. You're not going to be great, that. actually. Yeah, it was really good. I love it to this day. But, um, <laughs> you know. So, anyway, we'll move on to the final part of the show recommendations where we recommend something that we think might be of interest. And Julian goes first. I would like to recommend a food TikToker. Um, okay. His name is B, like just the letter B, Dylan Hollis, H-O-L-L-I-S. And he's on YouTube and face and Instagram and, and, and TikTok. So if you're not on TikTok, you can find him on other places. But um, he got big on TikTok. And he's, um, I think he's a PhD student, maybe. Um, he's doing his PhD. And he's testing out old recipes. So a really, really weird recipe from the Great Depression when they had to save money and they didn't, they hadn't, didn't have a lot of access to food and um, a lot of access to different types of ingredients. So he'll test these out and he'll stick to the recipe to the letter and he'll experiment. And his his videos are so entertaining. They're all very short. So you can watch all of them in maybe an hour. But he's such an inter he's such an entertaining 
a creator and such an interesting person and the way that he I, I think that's also the point of it. You you want someone you want to see someone do something that you never do and try it out and see if it works or not. And he's Sounds he's great. found some real good gems as well. Yeah, like he's he's great. Yeah, yeah B. Great. Dylan. He can Hollis. make a living out of this. Uh, yeah, he gets money from TikTok now. Yeah, yeah. yeah. never finishes his PhD. <laughs> <laughs> never, because it. it yeah, why would Point. he? <laughs> yeah. Um, it's what B B Just B Dylan Hollis. Dylan Hollis. That sounds really good. Um, so, uh, uh, Kajin, what's yours? Um, I am going to recommend a YouTube channel, a bit more old school, um, but it's also on food, uh, but it's on food history. Um, oh, oh. So it's called Tasting History with Max Miller. And it's basically by this guy who really does incredible research and delves into all these like medieval and ancient and Roman texts to basically recreate the recipes and he also talks about like the history like do you know like the word salary comes from sal as in salt because a lot of roman soldiers were paid with salt i was like wow you know (laughs) mind blown mind blown (laughs) salary (laughs) Um, yeah but also like ketchup used to be made with mushrooms instead of tomatoes um, because tomatoes were considered poisonous Um, (laughs) ketchup is from this part of the world though yeah so so he 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 delves into the history and also shows you know how to recreate these recipes and and basically it's it's kind of food archaeology if you think about it that sounds fantastic I, i want that what's his name again um, tasting history with Max Miller. Cool. Okay, that's and that's on YouTube. Yes. Okay. So um, my recommendation, which is actually going to end up being a recommendation of the first ever recommendation on a bit of culture, but, but I went to a bookshop, new bookshop today, NKL uh, Tsutaya Books, Japanese book chain Tsutaya. Oh, and, the one with Pavilion Bukit Jalil. Correct. And if you want to know where Pavilion Bukit Jalil is. It's the furthest point away from where you are right now. <laughs> and so uh, I, I, I went there with Waze, and it's somewhere between uh, take the next left and make a U-turn. <laughs> Just there. Just there. Mm-hmm. And uh, so uh, Tsutaya Bookshop is big. It's beautiful, actually. It's beautiful. Um, it's got a lot of teething problems. Uh, the, the ordering, the, you know, the alphabetical ordering is totally bizarre. Um, it it doesn't have as many books as there are shelves, but it. I bought two books, very two very good books, and uh, I do hope that it becomes a really good bookshop. But it's um, it's great that we have these big bookshops being opened in uh, KL. It's still not a patch on Kinokuniya, which is the first recommendation ever on a bit of culture, and I love Kinokuniya so much. Yep, because Kinokuniya is, it's not only a truly good bookshop. I would probably say it's probably the best bookshop in southeast asia mm, wow i think so and it it really reflects the fact that malaysians do buy books and do read books mm. and and don't listen to anyone that says otherwise uh so Sutaya bookshop i hope that it um i wish it the best of luck and um it's just wonderful that bookshops people believe that you know we, we should we should have bookshops in malaysia did you venture into the YA aisle by any chance? I had a look, you know, and I was a bit disappointed because you got the YA in Kino. It is packed with titles. And I, and I, I had a conversation with, I think it's the most successful single section in Kino Kunia. 
I think it gener it generates the most, I believe. Uh, that and business books or something. And um, <clears throat> so I was disappointed that the the YA at Sutaya they hadn't really gone in for YA, um, nor had they really really maximized stationery because that's really where you make money. Not yet, anyway. They will do. Hopefully. Yeah, they do. So uh, yeah, well, uh, it only remains for me now to thank our guest Onkar Jin. Thank you so much. Thank you. Uh, you won't even notice me when I slip into your place. <laughs> but he was like, I had a painting there. What happened to that painting? Uh, it's now in the ether. Yeah, it's been, I just like it. I took it. And uh, thank you so much to Julian Yap. Thank you so much. This has been super fun. Thank you. Yeah, and I shall, I shall, I shall immerse myself in TikTok for the next 45 seconds. Do you know what? I really feel like going back into YA right now. Yeah? Yeah. Really, I miss it so much. It, and obviously, as an adult, you can read it. You can read anything you want, but it, I haven't ventured into it, and it makes me sad. Well, during during MCO, I I reread all my Asterix books, Asterix oh, wow. you know, those comic oh. books, which I'd read when I was really young, and I hadn't read again since I was like nine or ten. And I reread them all, and they were not only fantastic; they were better than they were then because mm. I got the jokes now. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, recommendation: read your old books as yeah. well yeah 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 okay um uh, and i'm i apologize to everyone i have sounded more conservative on this particular episode than ever before <laughs> it won't happen again i blame kajin <laughs> <laughs> he brings it out of me so uh thank you very much and please join us next week for another exciting and more much more liberal minded episode of a bit of culture here on bfm 89.9 Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.